This is great timing because um, I personally am feeling dysregulated today. Mm. And so I look forward to applying the learnings from our session um, throughout my day today. Mm. Well, maybe we can start with something practical. Maybe we don't have to get too cerebral first. Okay, I can um, roll with that. Yeah, so I think that one of the best ways to really start is to orient to your current time, date, space. Um, that's different for everyone who's either listening to this and for even you and me, we're across the world right now. Um, so just orienting to your current time, date, space. Okay. And just seeing what shifts that does. Today is the 7th of October in Southern Victoria, Australia at 8.03 a.m. Hmm. Mm -hmm. And what are you noticing in your body whenever you shift into that awareness? I felt some tingles up the back of my neck. Um, I'm where my feet are. Hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah, a lot of the work that... I do is a lot of parts work, internal family system stuff. And so a lot of the times the different parts of ourself don't actually recognize what the current time date space is. And so that's also a really helpful thing to have happen whenever we are orienting to ourselves, especially if we're in a dysregulated place, it might be because of a reaction that's not happening in the current moment. And so sometimes whenever we reorient to that current moment, we can help all the parts of ourselves recognize what resources we have in our current day because oftentimes it wasn't like that in the previous time so that's one way that that approach works um okay so can you explain what that system is and maybe introduce yourself sure Hi, I'm Morgan Staristis. Uh, I'm the uh, person behind Minds Eye Guidance, and um, my educational background is um, I got my my bachelor's degree in um, cognitive neuroscience with minors in wellness and human biology, and I got my master's degree in clinical mental health with an emphasis in somatic therapies. Um, yeah, and I have my own private practice. I do both coaching and therapy for people. And some of those modalities are internal family systems, you know, our parts work. Um, but I also have my own framework that I have built out to include a more holistic picture for people because a lot of what I've seen and internal family systems is an excellent place to start. And, um, I found that there were some limitations both in westernized one-on-one -on -one therapy and also in the ways that we recognize that the mind is organized because that's a lot of what internal family systems is, is sort of recognizing that we are broken up into these parts of ourselves, And that was originally came from uh, Richard Swartz who brought this sort of paradigm of thinking to the field. He, you know, for a long time was noticing his clients would say, a part of me feels like this and a part of me feels like that. And so he would start to talk with these parts. And the more that he investigated that, he started to recognize that, and you know, just staying curious with them, that they all had jobs and a lot of them had different ages that they might, might be stuck in. They had different memories. Um, and so it's really getting to know your internal system and how it's organized. Um, and a lot of what my framework has done is just expanded that into a more holistic lens beyond how the mind is organized, but how your entire being is organized. Um, yeah, those are some initial thoughts. So these internal family systems and the, and the aspects of selves that, uh, manifest, are they kind of consolidated through experience? Like the first time you are presented with a certain, uh, emotion or feeling or uh, an event like rejection or loneliness or anger or frustration, whatever self comes out to meet that circumstance kind of gets, consolidated and then repeated in the future? Hmm. That's one way to look at it. Sometimes it's fractured. It's not consolidated. It's something like a traumatic event happens and we learn that, okay, in order to get love, then I need to do this. And we, it creates a job. And so there's a fracture of yourself that, you know, anytime this comes up, I respond in a way that gets me love in this way. And sometimes it's maladaptive. It's not helpful. Um, 
you know, and so that's why it's really important to orient to our current time date space, because a lot of the times these parts of ourself are still living in a time where it was really important to get love in this particular way because of my parent wouldn't give it to me unless I said this thing or unless I, whatever the job that they've created. Um, did that answer the question? Yeah, it, I think so. I mean, I, I'm aware that, you know, in certain circumstances, there are you know aspects of myself that were so strong and confident and ready to meet that circumstance before. And then maybe a shift in my just physical state that then influences my, my psychological state and that kind of bi-directionality. And I go, where is that person that was so capable a few minutes ago? Mm-hmm. Why mm-hmm. now that I've been uh, presented with this stressor, have I reverted to uh, this more disorganized way of thinking and dealing with things? And how can mm-hmm. we bring ourselves back to that that other competent version of self? And that mm-hmm. I like, I really like the idea of of orienting yourself to um, time, date, and place, because it is a simple way to bring yourself back to where your feet are. And you know, when we mm-hmm. look at these internal family systems. Is the goal to become aware of these aspects of self so that we can give them what they need, that that nourishment, and then help to guide them towards a more healthy way of adapting to that situation? Hmm. Yeah, so if there's any goal, I would, there's several, I suppose, but one of the main ones is to help orient your system to more of a curious observer. We call it capital S self in the framework of internal family systems, but there's a million different ways. I think some people talk about this as your higher self or like all these things, you know, and with the higher self, there isn't really an agenda. It's something that is just a presence to be curious with. Um, That's the aspect that really holds the present day moment and can help hold all the parts. Cause I think a lot of the times what ends up happening and similar to the story you shared is that a part might show up because they feel they're a protector and they need to do their job. And that boots another part that was more confident in that situation. And so then we've got, you know, younger parts of ourselves that are essentially hijacking our system back and forth and don't recognize that there's actually a larger observer that can hold all of those perspectives and validate all of those perspectives as important. Um, and so some of that work is really developing that objective observer that is able to stay curious and present with whatever is showing up. Um, yeah. And so that's something that you, I mean, it's a, it's a practice of trying to embody that awareness. And I love the, the curiosity approach. Uh, cause I've also, I've spoken about, you know, intrusive thoughts and trying to greet them with that kind of curious compassion you know, rather than having that instantaneous reaction and rejection and try and push it away, how can we look mm-hmm. at this thing like a like a butterfly that's landed on your palm? Like, oh, hello, you. What are you trying mm-hmm. to show me right now? And then, when which is hard to, go, to do when it's really difficult material showing up, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. And so, how the process of moving through that more instantaneous reaction and getting to that place of curiosity it takes a lot of work. Yeah. And compassion and curiosity is a really good place to start because a lot of the times I think we can get into a a thought of like, well, I need to love this. It's like, well, whenever you're going on a date with someone or even in friendship, there's curiosity before there's love. We don't need to bring, you know, we don't need to put the cart before the horse, right? It's something that what if, and actually this has been my experience and this is what internal family systems teaches is that there's no bad part. And that's, I think, alarming to some people because we're like, well, we don't like that part. We exile that part. We don't allow that part to be having a voice in our system. And what ends up happening is it's like a pressure cooker. They will come out and they'll do it in a much louder way. If we don't give them a space, they're going to respond by yelling. Right. And sometimes that means completely like taking over, hijacking your system when in, in opportune moments. Uh, so by staying curious, we give them a platform to share their voice. And a lot of the time there's a positive intention behind it. I think that that's also one of the, um, main 
things that we do within like therapy context is explore what what is that positive intention? What is your job? What are you trying to complete? Because another part of this is just helping those parts do their job better. It's not about changing them. I think sometimes it'll even get into, you know, people will be like, oh, I just like want that part to die or want it to not be part of me. And it's more about integrating them into the system to do their job to the best of their ability. Cause oftentimes the intention is not the same as the effect of what's happening. Mm. Well, because these parts were never taught, they were shown, they were, you know, a, a reaction that then, you know, got bundled up in our neural pathways. And when it comes to providing these parts, what they need, it's, it's more about modulating existing patterns and it is about creating new ones entirely. Mm -hmm. And it is you know, mm -hmm. easier to modulate that, that existing habit. And so is it about finding or identifying and becoming aware of those, those little points and moments that indicate that that self is starting to emerge and trying to shift the trajectory of that by, by getting on top of it early, right? Because it's, it's hard to make a, uh, make, make sound decisions about the way that you're behaving when you're at a seven or an eight on the emotional Richter scale. It's like, good luck. Mm -hmm. no, this, yeah. This yeah, exactly. The rational brain goes offline. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Mm -hmm. I mm -hmm. suppose that's where, you know, the self-soothing techniques come in and how we can, you know, regulate using that very physical approach so that we give ourselves the space to breathe, the room for those thoughts to blossom, and the opportunity for us to make a more tangible shift in a direction of our choosing rather than us just being kind of caught for the ride. Mm -hmm. Exactly. Yeah, there's there's both a validation of the different perspectives of parts within ourselves, but then there's also just that orientation toward our resources and how can we build from that to give us space to um, make subtle changes. Like you said, it's not like going completely back to the drawing board. It's recognizing, okay, there's a lot of good going on here. It might just be a little bit misguided. Um, oh, you're trying to reach this need, but that need is getting met in a way that maybe isn't aligned with my overall goals or whatever it might be. And, you know, cause I, I go back to the, you know, the ego, the reticular activating system and how these mechanisms kind of play a role in helping to protect and perpetuate us. And, mm -hmm. you know, a lot of our ego and our RAS was not, it wasn't taught, it was shown, it was demonstrated to us, whether it be through our, you know, interpersonal relationships, our familial relationships, relationships with our friends, those early childhood relationships, we see a, a parent, you know, react a certain way when something occurs, and that kind of just gets imprinted on us. And right. that just becomes the way. And mm -hmm. for years and years, unless we develop that awareness and want to make those shifts, uh, those systems aren't there to hurt us. They're not there to make us feel bad. They're not there to um, increase our capacity for self-sabotage. They are there in some format to help us, right? Mm -hmm. And it's exactly. about showing those systems that, I, hey, I, I hear you. I feel you. I know that this is what you're trying to do. The way that you're trying to do it isn't really serving me isn't really serving us. How can we make mm -hmm. some adjustments that still allow you to get the care, the nourishment, the support that you need in a way that makes everything better rather than as you screaming like, why am I like this? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Or I don't even want to listen to you because what you're bringing to me is just destruction and despair. I think a lot of the times, especially, you mean you're using the word ego and I actually really appreciate that because I think that the that word has been villainized, right? We, we try to not have an ego. It's, um, spiritually <laughs> not accepted. Um, and like you say, it's, it's something that's needed in the world to navigate through. There's benefit from it and out of balance. If our ego is completely hijacking our system all of the time, and we believe that that is us, if we believe that is capital S self, then it may you know, not get us toward the goals that we want, or it might not allow room for other parts of ourself, um, or even just capitalize self to really have a, a seat at the table. Um, and it's funny because the, even the, the desire or the vilification of the ego is still the ego. 
You know, like the, the <laughs> spiritual awakening and the uh, transcendence of the ego and then getting above that, so to speak, and 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 casting shame upon that thing is like, that's, that's the ego shaming itself right now. Mm. Like the mm-hmm. final gateway towards spirituality would be the renunciation of spirituality itself and the realization that mm. these are all innate tools that uh, exist within us to help us navigate the world. I wouldn't be here if I didn't have an ego. You wouldn't be here if we didn't have an ego. It's something that is profoundly, you know, beneficial. And it's about identifying the areas and aspects of that ego that we want to continue to refine and and make better and, and understanding as well when that ego is flaring up what it wants and what it's been shown to want and how we can adjust it so that it can begin to really point out more things that are beneficial, not only to us, but to the people around us, to society at large. I go back to one of my favorite quotes in Buddhism is, may I attain enlightenment for the benefit of all sentient beings. It's like, if I can continue to foster my ego in a really healthy way that allows me to care for others, then that's a better approach, I would think, than trying to shove it completely to the side and renounce this thing that keeps us alive. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And definitely even just recognizing that it is a, a part of ourself that also needs that care and love, like that, you know, in order for my system to function well, I need that aspect of me or else I'm going to be meditating in a cave and not connected to anything. And that's not really why I personally came to the planet to, you know, I, I want to experience stuff. I want to be here in human form. And I think that it's really just the distinction between recognizing that you are not only that. I think that that's where some of that villainization comes from. And it's pretty incredible. I think I nerd out about this framework because it's so a microcosm of this much larger picture, societal picture. Like if we could learn how to hold all of the different perspectives of our internal parts and help them recognize, oh, you all have a positive intention and you're just seeing things in a different way and you all have jobs and it makes sense. What would that be like if society was able to do that? And I think that when we're talking about changing the world and you know, just doing all these things, which is a common question for me, it's like, what can I do? It's like help people understand their own internal systems, because if they can, that will ripple out into the world in ways that we can't do when we're just trying to like name call and say you're doing it wrong because that's that's the very thing that is i think sometimes uh at a nature of it'll it'll just perpetuate the same things over and over mm. and i wanted the, the capital s the capital self mm-hmm. yeah capital s self yeah so this is you know the, the the highest self the the truest self and this is the is this a self or is this the awareness of the selves mm. I think that's where it gets sticky, right? I mean, this is all frameworks that humans are trying. I I think, you know, biology and psychology and all these things, it's like cells are studying cells and the brain is studying the brain and we're just trying to understand. So these are words we're trying to put onto it. And, you know, I think that these frameworks help us navigate through it. I don't think that there's a perfect way to talk about it because then it gets into the paradox of nature. It's like, well, we, I don't know, (laughs) you know, we, we can't know because we're trying to, uh, yeah, it's so complex. So I, I hate that it doesn't really have, I don't really have a good answer for that. It's just more of like, well, when you start asking that question, it runs into the paradox of unanswerable things. Um, the self, where does that go? How far does that go? I think it just turns into a philosophical question at that point. And all science does. Like the deeper you go into any uh, scientific prompt, it, it all becomes philosophical and it all becomes paradoxical. Uh, we, mm-hmm. Things are only simple if they're infinitely complex. And if we are this you know, ever-expanding universe that's, that's constantly creating itself, we are kind of just, just a slight latency lagging behind trying to figure out ourselves while we create ourselves. And mm-hmm. you're right, some of the language that we have is so, we try to ground it in reason and logic and answers. And there must be a reason that I'm like this. And there must be this this universal body of self that is aware of all these things. But the more I try and seek it, the more desperate I am to tune into it 
the farther away I get from what I am and why I am. And, Mm -hmm. you know, this rolls into the foundations of things like acceptance and surrender and how devotion and discipline and fluidity comes in with that. Mm -hmm. Because we spend so much time trying to analyze our past and identify the reasons for something, the reasons why. There's got to be a why, but there's not always a why, and we won't always find the reasons. And the longer we spend in that, you know, predictable past, the less likely we are to create a future that isn't this one. Because it's like all of that history is maintaining its relevancy and its power, but we're not where we're, our feet are. And we can't, no amount of anxiety is going to change the future either, but we can create it through our actions right now. And this mm-hmm. is kind of where I suppose the more of these, these physical practices come in, the actual self-soothing, the, um, you know, regulating our nervous system, identifying where the endocannabinoid system comes into play and how all of these systems go hand in hand. And really it's through doing things that make us feel good, right? Like, doing things that make us feel good. I'm not talking about fleeting pleasure and momentary bliss, but when you wake up and you go, <clears throat> yes, I am awake. I am alive. I am breathing. That feels good. When you eat a good meal with plenty of fat and diversity, you go, I feel good. I feel that energy. And then when you do things like yoga, meditation, breath work, and really start to massage and take care of that, that vagus nerve and you feel good. And this brings me into my next question is the vagus nerve. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I think what you're speaking to is, uh, just this combination of top down and bottom up approaches, because I think that one or the other doesn't work. And what I mean by those that are listening that don't know what that means is top down approaches in therapy is that very cognitive, you know, like CBT, um, let's let's digest these thoughts, the why. And that's a, that can be an important part of the process. It really can consolidate memories better. It can direct our future differently, right? And if we're only doing that, if we if we could heal completely with just our thoughts, we would have done it already. And so we know that there's a huge missing piece to this healing puzzle is this these bottom up approaches, which is recognizing we're not just a brain up in the head. We're an entire nervous system and an intricate biological system that cannot just be thought into feeling good, right? There's these, there's many different people find different ways to get to it. Um, and, you know, I was, I have a history of working with people who uh, struggle with eating disorders and you were speaking of like eating these particular things and you just feel good. I was like, I know so many people that don't feel good when they do that because they're top down isn't in alignment with their potential bottom-up processes. So I think a lot of what you're talking about, especially like with the vagus nerve, is this combination, this, this sweet point in the middle of these top-down approaches and these bottom-up approaches to be able to bring online our parasympathetic nervous system in times that we've started to become dysregulated. And I think the vagus nerve is such a hot topic right now. And it's it's a really interesting one to me because it is, you know, our biggest cranial nerve. It stretches all the way down into our gut and sacrum, which is incredible. There are endless uh, amounts of functions that this particular nerve does for us. And so I think it, we all get, we hop on this train and it's like, oh, this is so exciting. And, you know, there's a lot of question there's questions still in the field because for so long, we've only seen this as a biological. It doesn't, it doesn't, we haven't wrapped for a long time what ways this, um, you know, fits into the the psychological puzzle. Like, how does this actually make? How does how? What is that sweet spot of the meeting between the bottom up and the top down? So it's interesting to talk with, you know, doctors and medical professionals who have been taught in their medical school, like, well, the vagus nerve is this, and this is what it does. And then there's people that are saying, well, it actually is really helping. It's a huge. It's sort of the the ringleader of the parasympathetic nervous system. And so if we can use techniques such as you know singing, humming, long exhales, which are helping to vibrate the air 
areas that our vagus nerve runs through, it's helping to activate our parasympathetic nervous system. And some can say, well, that's just because you're breathing and that's, that's an automatic response, right? So like, of course you're breathing and you're going to feel it and we're attributing it to the vagus nerve. So I think it's actually this kind of sticky, funny in between place that we're in as a species. We're all just trying to figure it out, you know, and, and I've seen a lot of help that it's done for a lot of my clients to really understand some of these modalities to uh, bridge that gap because so much of it is just like collecting intellectual knowledge versus feeling and embodying the differences that um, even with clients, sometimes, you know, we'll be talking about stuff and really picking apart the pieces. And I'm like, okay, cool. How are you going to apply that? And they're like, I have no idea. <laughs> it's like, okay, cool. Let's, let's tap for a bit. Sometimes um, the butterfly taps is just such a, an incredible um, way of activating both hemispheres of our brain. So if you're just listening right now and you're not seeing the, the video, I'm just putting my, my, um, thumbs together as if like a butterfly and like Napoleon dynamite. Yep. And then putting them on my, um, on my collarbones and then just tapping back and forth, left, right, left, right. And what this is doing is activating both sides of my brain. Both hemispheres of my brain are talking to each other and that connection over the corpus callosum, which is, you know, the, the in-between point between our two hemispheres, it does some magical things for our nervous system to help us recognize that we're safe. It helps us process information that's really difficult a lot of the times. It helps us stay with difficult material. Um, and this was originally, or at least the exposure that I had of it first was in EMDR work, um, eye movement desensitization and, and reprocessing. And it's a incredible way that's that's usually eye movement that they're utilizing that bilateral stimulation um but there's also the physical tapping um and so this is sort of kind of come out of the the lab a little bit and it's like this is a really good resource beyond just the framework that emdr provides um and just to wrap it up you know uh put a bow on it is that emdr is actually a really incredible um suite sweet spot in between the top down and the bottom up approaches, because it's a very, um, method, like it's a, it's a method that creates a lot of congruency between your thoughts and also adds that bilateral stimulation in between. So yeah, those are a lot of words. So (laughs) I'm going to try and remember all of the questions that I just had. I do want to get get back to the, um, the, the eye like visual processing in a moment, but, uh, when it comes to this Vegas system, um, I mean, look, we're coming from this very monomolecular approach of Western medicine where we like to have an, a clear answer for things. This is why this does this and this is all that it does. And I was like, well, any certainty within the field of medicine and health is just a dead end for growth. It's, you know, we shouldn't be looking for answers. We should just be figuring out better questions to ask. And it's just the process of asking better and better questions and how vastly interconnected we are both physiologically psychologically and with the you know reality around us and how we interface all of those things together i have had similar experiences um you know working in the field of cannabis medicine and trying to talk to doctors and clinicians about the endocannabinoid system and when i first mentioned it they go what what do you what do you mean you're telling me that there's a system that influences every single other system and I wasn't taught about it in medical school. I'm like, yes, that is, that is true. That is what I'm saying mm-hmm. to you right now. <laughs> I'm like, Dude, you, you don't even have a single piece of facial hair. Like, what do you, who are you? Where did you find this? <laughs> like on, on the internet, you know, it's, it's all there. Um, this is a 600 million year old biological supercomputer that, you know, there are more cannabinoid receptors in your brain than there are all other receptors in your body combined. So I'd say that this, this system has some you know, serious responsibility and similarly to the you know the vagus system when through through trauma through chronic stress through dysregulated sleep it it becomes deregulated and we got to find ways to upregulate that system and similarly to the vagus nerve it's through doing things that uh, activate that parasympathetic nervous system and things that uh, activate our own endogenous release of the compounds that make us feel good through movement, through um, social connection and nourishment, through presence, through grounding yourself to wherever your feet are, through 
uh, foods that are high in things like anandamide and omega-3s and omega-6s. All of these things are so interconnected and you know, we don't want to get too stuck in the weeds about what they are and what they do because the actual methods we use to you know, cater to them and make them feel better are are really you know similar. It's um, doing things that that make you feel good, and of course, you know that's a great point that you made about the you know the eating disorders and how that modality or that approach of eating things that make you feel good isn't is relevant there because it's it's mm-hmm. such a fear response that it that actually throws somebody into a state of dysregulation but when it comes exactly. to this the vagus nerve i am um, and I, I apologize for anybody listening you might hear some dogs barking and some people moving because we are moving house right now and the removalists have just arrived um <laughs> oh the joy I wonder why I'm dysregulated. Yeah. <laughs> that might be part of it. Mm-hmm. Um, for myself, when I have experienced a few days of stress uh, or anxiety, um, I my vagus nerve, just a few fingers above my belly button, will be taut, thick, dense. Like I can touch it with my fingers and I can feel a big lump and it's it's sore. It's really uncomfortable to touch. And when I do my, <clears throat> my my breath work, I will, once I get to a stage where I'm doing uh, a big exhalation and then holding that that exhalation, I will massage that that vagus nerve right there. And often I don't want to do it because it is that, that discomfort, but I'll push through it and keep massaging it. And after about a minute or so, the nerve flattens out and it does, it's not sore, it's not uncomfortable. And I feel like things are communicating within my body effectively again. And mm. I, without fail, I will always feel better after I do this. Um, and so I, you know, I wonder if there's a combination of, of stress, anxiety, my posture, the way that I'm sitting, if I've been engaging in maybe sedentary behavior, I do a lot of work behind the computer and it's like this nerve gets kinked and bundled up and things just aren't as effective or clear in, in my mind or in my body. So, you know, we, we talked about the, the butterfly bilateral tapping and mm-hmm. I, I'm talking about a little bit of vagus nerve, you know, massaging down in the belly, but this thing goes everywhere. And I love that you touched on the, the humming because I, uh, I learned a few months ago that the, um, within that, that, that Buddhist meditation is stimulating that vagus nerve and you can, you can mm-hmm. feel that positive effect kind of emanating out from your throat to your mind, to your body. So can you explain a little bit more about, you know, the way that this thing works and where it is? Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, I mean, it stretches all the way down from the internal in your brain and down into your gut. Uh, and actually there's even some really cool research being done around, um, like, uh, gut biome and, and they even call them like psychobiotics. I'm pretty sure. I don't know the exact strains off the top of my head, but that there is a connection between what, um, your gut biome is doing and how that actually impacts because of the vagus nerves interactions with your gut biome, uh, interacts with your psychological well-being. Um, and so this, I mean, I think everything that we're talking about just makes it almost, it's so mind boggling because our systems are so intricate, you know? And so like, this is one, um, part of it, you know, and it's, and, and so, you know, like I said, it's hard to describe all the scientific nature because I feel like science is catching up with some of these almost like ancient things, you know, it's like, how long has OM been around and people have been chanting it because they know it works. And then we're like, Oh, that's the vagus nerve. Okay, cool. We've got an answer for that now, you know? And so some of it's sort of like, how much are we grabbing at these scientific answers that we already, we've got practices in place. And I think there's, there's a both and situation, right? It's like, it is really cool because that bridges the communication between people that that's too woo woo, like almost too spiritual. And like, I don't get that language. So it's really cool that it opens up more access to more people. Um, but it does feel like that sometimes, you know, to where we're like, when we start digging into the complexity of this, it is so, um, intricate because I I guess why I'm saying that is because if we focus on just the vagus nerve, um, then what is that leaving out of our entire system and its whole 
uh, intricate processes that it has. Um, I know that didn't quite answer all of your questions, but that's that's sort of where my mind goes. Uh, with <laughs> like there's, if there's there is no final answer with with any of this stuff. Um, if we do come across an answer, then we're kind of impoverishing ourselves of the other wonderful insights we can get through just continuing to ask the questions, right? Like mm -hmm. that's, that's mm -hmm. what it's all about. And there has to come a certain time where, you know, it's, it's the collecting of information versus acting on it. And I think that a strange side effect of having this abundance of information at our fingertips is that a lot of us might be waiting for the evidence of something before we engage in it. We're very evidence-based. Oh, well, show me the study that oming is good. Show me the study mm -hmm. that, that meditation is good for the brain. So do you need, <laughs> do you need the study? Do you need the uh, Well, I think that what's hard for me is somebody that has been, has had a background of working in research labs and knows how much, um, there, there's beauty in it. I'm not, by no means do I want anyone to misunderstand that I think that doing research is bad. I think it's actually a very great thing for us to continue to evolve our understanding, build upon it. I really like what you said around asking continuing questions because science is not about having answers. It's about asking questions and testing those questions. So, um, you know, that being said, I think in a lot of ways, when we're waiting on that evidence, when we're waiting on that research, I think a lot of people don't recognize how much bias is innate within the research process. I mean, it all the results that we get is based on the questions that we ask, and that's only a small fraction of we that we just don't know what we don't know, and it's a continuous process. So I think that you know, evidence-based stuff can be really good because it's a system that can be relied upon. And that's great. And I think that that creates more collective peace, that creates more collective awareness around, like we can share this idea and we know it works and, and that builds trust. Um, there's a whole nother side tangent my brain wanted to go off, but I'm gonna keep it on this. <laughs> Is, you know, so I think, yes, there's, there's research behind a lot of these things. And then there's not there's a lot in science or that science just can never answer. There's a lot of sort of black boxes in the world of um, human development that, you know, I, th there's so many things that clients have come up to me and it's like, sorry, there just is no research behind that. Like, I don't, I don't know how to answer questions around you experiencing entities, which is a very real thing. And no, you're, you're not experiencing um, like psychotic symptoms. You're, you're very, in the present moment and you have experienced an entity. Sorry, there's just nothing that science is, science has not funded someone to ask questions to research that, right? So then it's like, okay. Anyway, so there, there's so many, my brain wanted to go in oh, so many yeah, different directions. Go, so I'm just go. gonna keep it to that. No, no, if you have a tangent, explore it. <laughs> yeah, um, I think that, you know, a lot of what we've been seeing in today's world, and this is sort of more of a, a more like anthropologic as we're, we're kind of like looking at it as it's happening, is that with the combination of the algorithms increasingly being more uh, tailored to us and our personal experience and how much time we're spending in a personalized experience, I think it's exacerbating this rift in some ways around recognizing that we all experience our own subjective reality. And um, I don't think that that's the only thing to it. Um, I think that why I started thinking about that was that research and a lot of these collective things we can agree on actually provide a lot of peace and trust and structure that we can all lean into and say, oh, you're actually a lot more similar to me than I thought. Oh, we agree on this. I think that's what religions and a lot of other things throughout time have done for us. And it's created a lot of cooperation and a lot of really beautiful things. And I think right now there's this interesting phenomenon. I've just been watching and experiencing myself of, you know, lack of trust in media, lack of trust in our structures. And I think that you know, there's a lot more internal or there's just a recognition that we are all living our own subjective realities um, and who's to say what's right or what's wrong in that when it becomes less objective. Um, so that was my side tangent and it opens up a whole can of worms. So that's why. <laughs> I love it. I love it. That's, yeah. what, that's what we're here for. Um, yeah. I think that, I mean, that's, that's fascinating because the zeitgeist is shifting. Um, the idea of a subjective reality is is not really woo-woo anymore. It's like, oh yeah, we, we 
do have this subjective reality. How we see the world is how we are or how we've been conditioned to see it. And in order to change the world, first we have to change how we're seeing the world. And it's like we going back to the the ego and the RAS. So what we see, what we see is different because what we've been shown to see is different. What we've been taught to look out for and the information that is filtered in is going to be different. If I go to a cafe with a friend, I might notice the music that's on the radio, the way that the sunlight is pouring in through the windows. I might notice how the guy at the back of the cafe seems extra lonely. And my friend might realize the cute person working behind the counter. They might realize that that cookie is super dry. They haven't tasted it, but it looks really dry. And that the floor clearly hasn't been cleaned in weeks. And we will both have been in the same exact environment for the same amount of time, having this you know, a conversation with each other and walk away with completely different memories, a completely different experience. Mm -hmm. And then once that information comes in, it's also interpreted through our own unique neural pathways, which is that history consolidated into this interpretative, interpretive, interpretative mm -hmm. and reactionary machine. Yeah. And really what draws us all together is that um, we can have a conversation and be aware of that. We can be aware that we are seeing reality in a different way. And through that awareness, we are the same. We are the similar. We are the space in which it all occurs. And I think we are moving towards a place where people realize that reality is so nuanced and subjective and that through subtle shifts in the way that we see and interpret things, decisions we can make to see things with curiosity, see things with uh, compassion, and see things with the optimistic interpretation that allows us to live in you know, a more palatable experience. And these are all decisions. And sometimes we don't want to admit how much power we do have over our reality because, you know, that's a difficult thing to come to terms with. And it, it automatically shifts us into this state of like fault or blaming of like, oh, well, you had the power, but you didn't do it. This is your fault. It's like, no, there's no, mm. there's no fault here. The more you mm. know, the more you realize you didn't know. And through not knowing, you know more than the people that say they do, because certainty is really an illusion. It's mm. you know, impoverishing yourself of everything that you aren't exactly certain about. And, you know, going back to the, the Taoist uh, not knowing mind, and that's where the answers lie. And the difference between knowing something and understanding it, which is where that kind of evidence-based um, approach comes in, is that I can know something. I know lots of things because I've memorized a sentence, a little factoid here and there, a bit of statistics over there. Do I understand those things? No. There's very little that I understand aside from that I don't understand. And that makes me mm. understand that everything is so infinitely complex. So I'll reorient myself to the date and the time and the location and take it from there. <laughs> yep. Yep. Exactly. And you spoke to some of those meta concepts of like, okay, if you can understand that your own self has all these parts that have different perspectives that have their own subjective realities internally, what does that mean for how you interact with the world and other people's subjective realities? Is everyone just doing the best they can? Do we all have relatively positive intentions that we're trying to do what we can with what we have and just subjective lenses to share the same universe in? You know, and that's why it gets that complicated. What self? I'm like, well, if we're looking at that meta lens and it's like the self is that big, big universe and we're all just these little parts inside of that. And it's, I'm sure it fractals outward and inward. You know? So it's, there's, like you said, it's sort of like, it all feels sort of like a, a river and we're not meant to, to like hold on to it. it. I think Alan Watts was the one that said it, that like, if the more we try to hold on, the more it slips through your fingers. And, and it feels like there's a certain surrender to that but also like we're here to experience and be human and we're playing with the computer of our body and perception you know that we have and so it's like cool go have fun and play with it too it doesn't need to be serious like i have the answers and i'm, I'm going to keep it forever because it's all within context and it's all within like i don't know if there's an objective truth um and so anyway all of this is just sort of navigating through and we're all just figuring it out and sharing ideas and you know and it look, it's it's the most incredible thing to be alive today. And I say that with the obvious, you know, privilege of like the conditions have existed for me to be able to say something like that. And I do have a, a really beautiful, wonderful 
you know, satisfying life. And uh, the conditions have led to me being able to, you know, interface with reality in a really positive way. I have not had, um, you know, as much significant history to work through. I started with a pretty clean slate for which I am, you know, deeply grateful. Um, and it's easy for me to say that you should go have fun, you know, because I, I truly believe that, uh, we should be enjoying ourselves. We are these, these wonderful blobs of gray matter that are sentient and we can go around and collect new experiences and new ideas and form social connections and form connections with, you know, the, the earth that we've come from. And one day we'll just get folded into the dirt and stone with the rest of it. So while we're here, while we get to experience this potentially brief and finite period of sentience and awareness, let's use that to, you know, find out how much we have to offer because if we are this you know universe experiencing ourselves from this human perspective then through my interactions with this universe i'm creating more of myself i'm experiencing more of myself it really is this kind of infinite game and that infinite game is playing games of love playing games of connection playing games of community and wisdom and the sharing of our insights and learnings and if we can do whatever we can to help perpetuate that and of course we have the finite games we stack the finite games climbing the corporate ladder making decisions within real estate uh, figuring out the algorithm things like that but we can stack those finite games to help us perpetuate those infinite games and those infinite games when you play them there's, there's never less, there's always more, whatever love you create, you create more love, whatever love you receive, you create more love. Like this, this wonderful interconnectedness of reality, this vast, infinite interconnectedness, really the idea of certainty, the idea of needing an answer. It's like, there is no single answer except for the fact that that is the answer. Mm -hmm. So and there's that paradox. There's the paradox. <laughs> right. you know, and there's, the paradoxes are, are everywhere. I, paradoxes are like a fundamental governing force of our reality, of our universe. Everything has, has you know, a polarity to it. And recognizing that can make it easier to flow with those paradoxes rather than fight them. And there are times to, you know, to fight and push. And then there are times to surrender and sometimes the surrendering is the fight. You know, sometimes it's difficult to surrender and that is the obstacle and the obstacle is the way. So how do we surrender to the way that things are with the understanding that the way that things are is a subjective interpretation of the way things mm -hmm. are. And so, mm -hmm. you know, the, the saying like, it is what it is. Like, yeah, but is it? <laughs> is there a different is? There's that curiosity. Yep. <laughs> Exactly. Uh, you know, something I just want to, I've got a question for you that I, I think about personally, and I sort of ask minds that are, I think are just able to hold that perspective. Um, and this is, it's okay if this is the last question, but I'm, I'm just curious of what you think about this. It's, it's a conundrum for me. And as a person who really wants the best for the world, right? Like, I'm like, how do I do this all responsibly and ethically? And how do I move through the world with as little harm as possible and all these things? And so that's where this question is coming from is that a lot of the time, whatever our intention is, will sometimes get reversed. You know, uh, Marshall McLuhan was somebody that studied media and he would talk about the four stages of media. And that fourth stage is reversal. So we kind of think about like social media, for example, it's like, well, the intention was to have more connectivity, but then by the end of it, it's actually creating a world that has less empathy and less connection and all these things. And so how do you as a human um, move through the world, despite positive intentions, creating the opposite of what you might intend. Um, and we can't know what the end result is because we're not future tellers and we don't know what all these consequences are going to happen to a particular decision. But like, where does your mind go with that question? Because it really is just like a personal conundrum. This isn't, you know, I, I'm just curious. Mm. Oh, that's, I mean, that's really fascinating. Um, I've never heard those four stages and I can you know, drawing from my own personal relevancy, the you know, effort 
or the intention of myself getting on social media was I, I find a bunch of things interesting. Let's go share those things in an effort to connect and an effort to, um, to educate, uh, empower. And you're right. There comes a certain point where you know, this, there was a, an arc where I started to get lots of messages and I was like, I got to reply to these people. Cause not only are they, you know, very sweet messages. They're messages that deserve a reply. In my opinion, they were thoughtful and compassionate and curious and loving. And I felt very pressured and very stressed to reply to those things. And, mm -hmm. you know, at the same time, I, I work full time. I, you know, I run a, I'm the head nurse at a cannabis clinic. I have my own business, my own things that I'm trying to manage my own personal life. I've also always been a fairly insulated or insular person. I, I've never been a good replier. Um, my phone tends to give me anxiety. Notifications spiral me. Uh, so feeling this urge and need and responsibility to reply, um, the pendulum had to swing and I had to get to a point where I didn't let that affect me and that I, I, I almost don't look at messages because I, if I'm spending too much time on this app, then I'm not creating, then I'm not thinking, then I'm not, um, you know, connecting but in that process, I'm now less connected to the people that are trying to connect than I was when I had the intention of connecting. And something mm -hmm. that I've really had to consciously implement and embody is there's a gratitude practice. Uh, you get desensitized to messages of adoration. You get desensitized to messages of you've changed my life, which is fucked mm -hmm. up. You know, to have somebody reach out. I hear you. I, I, I'm in the, I'm in the same boat. I, it's like one of those things. It's like, why would a negative comment that someone who's like never seen any of my stuff before impact me more than the five, 10 people today that have told me that that content really helped them. It's like, okay. <laughs> you know, so it's just, and it's interesting. <laughs> it's, it's amazing what our brain points out to us as, as relevant. That's important. <laughs> yeah. Exactly. Remember this. Like I, and I, yeah. you know, drawing back to a tangent I had before about um, the EMDR and, you know, visual processing and, and accessing information. I uh, am always looking around when I'm speaking and mm -hmm. every single video I will look off in that direction, look off in that direction. And then sometimes I'll bring it back to the camera and it's like, my brain has caught up to that. My mouth has caught up to my brain or vice versa. And I'm here again. And then I'm accessing information and doing that. And I had one comment the other day, but like your eyes are shifting around shows to me that you don't really believe anything that you're saying. Mm -hmm. I was like, Hmm, I'm not going to let this affect me, but I have carried it with me until this moment to ask you, right. What, what does yeah, that <laughs> Yeah. Yeah. How much of that subjective experience, because that's their programming to recognize like, Oh, looking this way. Cause I, I think that there's some sort of like, uh, you know, people that are trained to detect lies and stuff. I think that there's like one particular way that you look when you're lying or something, you know, there's like uh, body language that you can read. So it's like interesting that somebody that might've picked up on that information then puts in a view, but it's like not actually what, you know? Um, and so to answer your question though, it's, it is in the mystery box. Why it works. We don't know. It does work. We do know it's, it is an evidence-based UMDR is an evidence-based, um, you know, it has been tested over and over. It's very, that method is, has, is proven to work. We don't know why, what they think it is, is that it has some sort of relation with, uh, REM sleep and the way that your brain processes information. Um, yeah. But I just want to say that like all of this is so new. I mean, we did not have neuroimaging in the field of psychology or, or like really medicine until like the nineties. So all of this stuff is really, I mean, I know that's just one tool to look at it in, but to really see how much technology has grown to where we're even able to ask these more intricate questions of like, Oh, what's happening there. And how does this match up with the results we're seeing? Um, it's still sort of a question mark. So um, to create some kind of helpful, helpful recap, the way that I'm looking at this, uh, the combination of modalities from the top down and from the bottom up, finding those sweet spots in the middle, using uh, those changes to influence positive alterations in our habits, in our patterns, um, change our state to change our traits 
can we change our traits? Because within the field of psychology, it was very confident that no, our traits are static. They do not change. But we see that people are changing all of the time through awareness and compassion and uh, implementation of consistent uh, care for ourselves and the way that we talk to ourselves and the way that we uh, decide to interpret ourselves in the world around us. We see that there are a lot of aspects of self that, that can change because we're not dealing with one self. We're dealing with many. And if we can learn to care for those many selves and teach them better ways to interface with reality, then we are changing traits because those same things that would flare up in response to something are no longer doing that, that same reaction. Mm-hmm. So, you know, using things like the vagus nerve and um, changing our biological state through our diet, through our exercise, through you know, substances and pharmaceuticals or plant medicines, even a conversation that, you know, f- releasing anandamide and oxytocin and serotonin and a little bit of dopamine, all of those things go into changing our biological state, which allow us to more consciously direct our psychological state. And if we have more of those chemicals, we'll build stronger neural pathways, make sure that those adjustments and patterns we do make are are more solid. And through that process, we actually can change who we are, or at least the patterns of the self, the awareness of that self. Yeah, definitely. And I think some of that still that that is backed up with science. I think that there are emerging things, like I said, only until the 90s, we thought that the brain was static. And now we understand it is malleable. We do change our neural pathways. And with epigenetics, we thought, okay, biological predisposition, that's just how it is. But now we see that how we're nurtured, how we experience the world actually creates different gene expressions. And so we're, we're malleable creatures, I think is, is really a huge point of what I got out of this conversation is we're malleable creatures and we can choose. I think everybody has a different subjective starting point, um, whether that's cultural or biological or whatever, but we do have choice. And I think that it, it does take responsibility to claim that choice mm. and it's scary and that's where your power is that is where our power is no amount of regret can change the past no amount of anxiety can change the future we cannot control the outside we can't control the inside what we can control is how we respond to the outside how we respond to the inside how we respond to the past and how we use all of that to change and decide what we're going to do right now and it is this this massive element of responsibility and don't for anybody listening don't feel like you must act on all of these things right now uh, patience with yourself grace the time will come treat yourself with compassion speak to yourself kindly catch yourself when you are you know escalating with that you know you know emotional richter scale and go to Morgan's Instagram page and implement some of the you know, the self-soothing techniques. I am going to go away today and I'm going to practice the butterfly bilateral tapping simulation because even just for a few moments doing that before, I immediately started to calm down, put things in perspective. And it doesn't always have to be so hard. Sometimes it can just be a little bit of bilateral tapping and that can get you through a really difficult moment and the change is incremental and it happens piece by piece. You don't have to change the world. You don't have to do anything profound and climb mountains. Just show up for yourself a little bit each day. We are all doing our best, even if it might not seem yeah. like it from the outside. No one's trying to hurt you. No one, your, yourself isn't trying to hurt you. That self-sabotage, if you experience it, it's coming from a place of needs needing to be met. And we can treat all of those things with compassion. Yeah. Yeah. And just uh, for people that do want to sort of connect with me afterward, um, I also do have an online course that uh, really does help do put into practice a lot of what we've talked about is just like not only recognizing yourself in a holistic lens and what your patterns look like, um, a lot of this parts work, but in more of a holistic um, framework and actually helps you change them, you know, really helps put into practice this daily nervous system regulation and helps to stay curious on a daily basis with the support of a community um, that's also doing that work alongside you. So it's just a really powerful resource if people are listening to this and like, yes, I, I want, I want to help. 
I want help and guidance with that. Um, that's something that I, that I offer. So Morgan, thank you so much for being here. Um, I would love to do this again. I have more questions yeah. and I'm going yeah. to wait to re-listen to this episode. Um, you find that like sometimes when you're doing podcasts, you don't even know what you've said until the end because yeah. you're trying to be present and, and, and you know, absorb what's being, what's being said. Um, mm -hmm. But I, uh, I would love to do this again um, yeah. next time talk about you know, that pattern awareness, because it's so complex. It's not A, B, then C happens. It's like multidimensional pinball. And identifying those patterns can be really challenging and confronting, and they come across at, at, at random times. And it's mm -hmm. about how we use that awareness and how we respond to that awareness and how we embody it moving forward. So, Maureen, yeah. thank you so much. I, I yeah, really thank you. Today. Yeah, there's so many untapped questions. So I'd be happy to do it again. So awesome. let me know. And if anybody listening has questions, I'm sure that we could, uh, you know, entertain that as well. Yeah, we'll throw <laughs> up a Q&A for the next one. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Nice. Cool. Yeah, well, it was good to meet you. And uh, yeah, thanks for hosting this space. Thanks for coming, Morgan.